You're listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha. Thank you for being here with us. I want to start the show today by giving you a heads up that this episode contains upsetting content, including mentions of sexual abuse and spiking. You're most welcome to take a pause and check the show notes for a description of what's to come. And please take care of yourself. So on the exchange today, we have another instalment of our new series, Reflections, where we break down some of the incredible writing and important stories that are covered across RA. I am joined by two of our amazing writers, Anu Shukla from the news desk at RA and Chloe Lula, who is our managing editor. So the story that we're looking into today is around the rising cases of needle spiking being reported in our beloved dance music clubs. Anu wrote and published a piece on this issue in June. Chloe has been following the story and will be able to give us the latest. First, let's hear from Anu, who will start us off by reading an excerpt from the original report. On May 27th, DJ and producer Zanius spoke publicly about her ordeal via Instagram, saying she had a brush with death in a needle-spiking incident at Berghain on Monday that week. She told RA that more than 30 people have contacted her since the post with similar stories. Amongst them were 10 cases of drink spiking and 7 of needle spiking, two of which allegedly occurred at Berghain. Faze Fatale was playing the closing set when I suddenly collapsed but I have no recollection of anything that happened from 20 minutes prior to this, she said. Friends helped Zanias piece together the sequence of events. They told her she was carried backstage, taken downstairs in the lift, and to a sofa in the cloakroom area until she became responsive again. As soon as I started to come round, we were escorted out of the club, she said. I realised I didn't have my house keys because my sister had the coat check token for my bag. The bouncers wouldn't let my friend back in to find her. She finally received my call and came straight out. During this time, Zania said her friend was freaking out because he was convinced he'd just watch me die while trying to argue with the bouncers to let us stay. There has been a growing uncertainty about claims of spiking in clubs. According to Berlin Club Commission Chief Lute Leichsenring, medical experts said there's a lack of medical evidence. Anyone jabbed with a needle would feel it and would bruise. Zanias told RA she didn't feel the needle and she didn't bruise. Whether party goes overindulge or are spiked, what more can venues do to ensure the greater health and safety of their attendees? If spiking is indeed becoming more common and dangerous, then the laws about casualties at clubs need to change, said Zanias. Strict controls are there to protect people, but if they're impeding harm reduction then they're not actually doing what they're supposed to do. Thanks ever so much for sharing that excerpt, Anu. Um, Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about the original article that you wrote? 
Thanks so much for having me on the show, Martha. Pleasure to be here. I think it's a very important subject that we're going to be discussing today. So my name's Anu Shukla. I'm a journalist with Resident Advisor. I've got a background in news media journalism. And um, today we're going to be speaking about spiking incidences in Berlin. Um, so yeah, the story um, kicked off after an Instagram post was made by an artist called Zanias um, some time ago. And this led us to um, reach out to her and investigate a little bit more into what's happening with these incidences in Berlin. Mm. So this story was originally published on RA in June. Um, at the time and prior to publishing, can you tell us a little bit about how you approached the coverage and what were the key points that you needed to both research and then communicate in the article? Okay, so like I said, the story was triggered by an Instagram post um, by Zanias in which she explained the details of what happened to her at Bergein, where she suddenly collapsed. This propelled us to reach out to her. She explains in the post, but she also told me separately, that when she came around after collapsing, bouncers had escorted her out of the club uh, with a friend and refused to allow them to go back in. Um, she didn't realise that she was being thrown out for collapsing in the venue and um, instead she was kind of struck with this kind of like fear and paranoia that she'd done something seriously wrong. So this kind of led me to question the approach that venues have towards harm reduction um, and also it's quite revealing that ever since she made that post, 30 other people reached out to her um, with um, details of what they had experienced as victims of spiking too. Uh, most of them, apart from the person that we spoke with for this story, didn't want to speak out publicly and um, not even anonymously. Um, so this led us to kind of approach the Berlin Club Commission because they work with organisations like Sonar Berlin to administer training and harm reduction to staff at venues across Berlin. And according to the commission, venues are trapped between a rock and a hard place because of strict anti-drug laws in Germany. Um, they don't want to be associated with casualty cases as it could lead to their venues being shut down. The club commission mentioned that there's also little evidence um, of spiking taking place, evidence like police or medical records to prove that spiking is actually happening. Um, so, yeah, that was quite interesting. So it was, it was kind of like it kind of triggered us to kind of explore that avenue a little bit more as well after speaking to them. That was quite an interesting and useful conversation to have with, with Lutz um, from the um, club commission. So in the case of Zanias, she didn't actually feel the needle, but she told me that she had no recollection of anything that happened 20 minutes before she collapsed. Um, but um, the club commission also said that, you know, they've spoken to medical experts who say it's impossible to be spiked with a needle and not get not feel it or not get bruised by it. So what's interesting is Zanias didn't feel the needle and neither did she, neither did she um, you know um, receive any bruising from 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 this incident. Um, I guess this kind of led us down another sort of route. So they had their medical experts telling them this. So I thought I need to get my own information um, from medical from my, from my own sources. So I reached out to um, one medical expert called Dr. Avika Lakani, who is a dental surgeon and a medical aesthetics specialist who works with small needles. And she kind of said the opposite, that when you're using, if you use a tiny 33 or 34 gauge needle, it's likely that you're not going to feel it and it's likely that you're not going to bruise. And it takes about two seconds for 0.2 milliliters of a substance to be administered and about 10 for two milliliters um, well, one of the most obvious steps to take 
after speaking with Zanias was to reach out to Burgoyne for a response to the situation and later on also to Sisyphus where another needle spiking incident was experienced by a victim who we also spoke with for this story but neither of those venues were actually willing to comment. Um, but what we did learn from the club commission was the fact that Burgoyne had admitted the situation had not been dealt with in in the way that it that it could have. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's 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 loads of things that happened after that. Actually, is I mean, it's it's such a it's such a um, intense story, and there's so much detail to it. And I couldn't fit everything into it, but it was obviously very important to observe how the situation was being approached by industry players. So in the aftermath of the incident with Zanius, um, the Club Commission launched a social media campaign warning people about using GHB, something that Zanius kind of said, you know, this was kind of like akin to putting the onus on punters and failing to deal with the fact that spiking is a, a reality. Um, she did actually admit that she'd taken a small amount of ketamine, but not the kind of quantity that would have led her to collapse in the way that she did. And she did have a drink with her the entire time, so there was no way anyone could have spiked it. But she also emphasised that attitudes of venue staff um, do need to change as well. So we need to look at how we approach harm reduction through the lens of staff working in venues and how we can kind of transform uh, and evolve into the future and learn from the situation. Absolutely. Um, so there was a lot of key points from your article that you had to get across. Relaying Zania's story, understanding the medical side of things, examining the club's response and the context of Berlin clubs fearing being shut down on drug laws and lots more elements that I think we'll get into in today's conversation. Um, but for now, Chloe, you live in Berlin. Perhaps you can give us a bit of context of like what things are like. Um, you were there pre-pandemic, post-pandemic. What's raving in Berlin like for you? Do you feel safe? How is it? Sure. So I started visiting and clubbing in Berlin starting in 2013, uh, but I moved here permanently in 2016. So I'm a seasoned clubber. I've seen the city and its nightlife institutions evolve quite a bit in the last few years. And I would say that the environment does feel markedly different post-pandemic for a number of reasons. Uh, but I think the environment has changed most palpably in the sense that there is a very salient sense of anxiety around going out since the hiking spiking report began in March, uh, which is also non-coincidentally when the second lockdown ended and clubs started reopening. So I do personally feel less safe going out than I used to since these reports have been at the forefront of most conversations I've been having. And um, in, the, in the past, I would have gone to clubs like Bergheim by myself, but I no longer really feel comfortable doing that. And the fact that this is so top of mind has really prompted me to do more of a critical investigation into why this hike in reports of both needle and drink spiking cases has been on the rise. So since since Anu did her news piece, I've also been conducting a series of interviews and I've been reading some social science articles uh, just to help elucidate the socioeconomic, political and environmental factors that might have contributed to this shift. Um, I do think it's really important to make this as nuanced and fact-based a conversation as possible because I, I think there has been some hysteria circulating in the media 
that's been contributing to problematic discourse around the topic that lacks any critical investigative inquiry. So I, I just want to be sure that uh, that's top of mind. At this point, I also just want to underline that it's so important not to discount the accounts of victims and people who have reported that they've been spiked, especially because these cases are so difficult to verify and have such serious implications for women and sexual minorities. Mm. Yes. And Chloe, you've been gathering information on spiking to give us some additional context around why this might be happening right now. Um, can you share some of your findings? When I first started looking into spiking, um, I saw that reports of needle spiking specifically uh, were really trend towards being pan-European and the first began to emerge in the UK in summer 2021. And by 2022, the UK National Police Chiefs Council confirmed that the police had received more than 1,300 reports of needle spiking. And very similar reports began to emerge in France, Belgium, and the Netherlands shortly thereafter. And Berlin has been the most recent place to receive these reports beginning in March 2022. I spoke to Berlin Club Commission as well. And Another thing that the Club Commission brought to my attention is that the symptoms of needle spiking are very similar to dehydration or hypoglycemia. So it's possible that when you're psychologically primed to think that you have been spiked, um, as we are right now because of some of the hysteria that's being circulated in the media, the fear and panic combined with alcohol or poly drug use, as well as a really sudden return to an unfamiliar indoor environment, which has been framed as being dangerous to us because of the pandemic. Um, so after years of lockdown, that can induce spiking-like symptoms. So I think that there are, are a couple of scenarios uh, that are possible. Um, the first is that there can most certainly be a rise in needle spiking cases, and it's just very difficult to verify because we have no systematic recording of the cases. Um, you know, as I said, I think a lot of people don't feel comfortable going to the police. Um, and another reason is that many of the drugs that could be used in spiking have short half-lives. Again, so it's difficult to actually detect these drugs once you do get a test. Um, a final consideration is that in Berlin, the only way to have a needle spiking case legally substantiated is by going to the Gewaltschutzambulance uh, or a forensics institute, which few people know that they have to visit and it has very limited opening hours so it's it's extremely difficult to have these cases documented and I think that that is why we're hearing so much just by word of mouth. So Anu when you spoke to the Berlin Club Commission they were kind of explaining about how venues are sort of at this high risk of being shut down over drugs so when someone seems to be very inebriated or wasted um, they're quite keen to like move people on uh, so that it doesn't affect them too much. Do you think that this has given us a little bit of context in relation to how clubs are responding to people who are seemingly very wasted? I think you make a very valid point there about questioning um, the response of clubs to the seemingly inebriated and I think that raises a, a critical question. How do we make venues safer? How do we implement harm reduction practices in ways that don't discriminate against those who might have overindulged? 
And it raises the question, does it really matter if you've overindulged or if you've been spiked when harm reduction is critical to the well-being of anyone who's in a fragile state, regardless of how they got to that stage? So one of the things that Zania said to me is that if spiking is becoming more dangerous than laws about casualties in clubs, they need to change. I mean, strict controls in venues, they're designed to protect people, right? But when they're jeopardising harm reduction practices, they're potentially doing more harm than good. And there have been several reports about this in the past. So ultimately, this comes down to saving lives. And I think the situation at Bergheim is comparable to the experience of the victim who said she was spiked at Sisyphus. Um, so the Sisyphus um, victim, she was completely sober. And as I explained in the story, she was dancing towards the back end of the club where there was more space to dance. And she told me that just as a group of men walked past her, she felt a sharp slap on her upper right thigh, uh, the type that you feel in the immediate aftermath of an injection. So she went to the toilet with a friend to have a look and found a swollen red mark. And she began to lose her memory about five minutes later. Her friends helped piece together what happened next. So they approached the bouncers and the bouncers, they called an ambulance. The ambulance crew carried out a swab test. They were able to verify that she'd been spiked with a needle. Days later, when she went to the police station to report the incident, she was told that there have been multiple reports about spiking incidents in Berlin. So I think what's important about this story is the comparable response of the two venues we're talking about here. Zanias told me that if bouncers had at least advised her to go to hospital to get checked out for collapsing, it would have, quote unquote, made a world of difference. You know, I think we need to be very clear. It's not a blame game conversation that we're having here. It's a simple case of knowing what to do when a punter is fragile, regardless of what got them into that state in the first place. And again, this prohibitionist uh, approach to drugs appears to be a major stickler affecting how venues carry out their roles as protectors of the public in um, in scenarios like this. Mm. And one thing that is like glaring out to me across both of the cases that you reported in your article is um, the friends of the women. It's lucky in a way that these people both had friends with them uh, to make sure that they got home safe and they got out of the situation so that nothing more could happen to them um, but there is something there I think about women being able to go out and experience electronic music or any music in a club environment on their own and having that connection to that music and being allowed to be safe. Um, Chloe have you been reading and thinking about how women are being affected um since coming out of the pandemic and, and maybe any shifts that you've been exploring and noticing and writing about um, in terms of how women are being treated and what that loss of like freedom of being able to go raving on your own just because of spiking or fear of being spiked um, could do to people. There are a few sociologists and historians I've spoken to who think that needle spiking is reflective of a post-pandemic panic. Um, I spoke to someone named Paul Weatherhead, who is the author of an article on needle spiking that recently came out in Psychology Today. And he told me over email that the history of needle spiking um, as a moral panic dates back to 1913 in the US and to the 1920s in the UK. 
And this was rehashed in the 1980s. Um, there's an element of like a supremely sexist morality tale in all of these reports. Um, a lot of them imply that women aren't really capable of looking out for themselves and they aren't safe in, you know, the quote unquote dangerous space of nightclubs. Um, and he also told me that phantom attacker panics like needle spiking um, often happen at times of stress and anxiety. And, um, you know, it makes sense when you take into consideration like the, the months of social isolation and disruption that people globally had to undergo, regardless of whether or not needle spikings are taking place. I think the general climate we're in now, which is one in which I personally don't feel as safe going out as I used to, is indicative of a broader shift in our general culture and club culture by extension. Um, I think it's a byproduct of wider sexual violence and crime. Most of the perpetrators are cisgendered heterosexual men in both drink spiking and potentially needle spiking. There was a documented increase in domestic and sexual violence towards women during the pandemic, which uh, has been very widely written about in many social science and psychology papers. And according to the Office for National Statistics, there were 61,000 rapes recorded in 2021, which was up 10% from the previous year. And it's the highest recorded annual figure to date. Um, I think there are a lot of reasons for this. Uh, I'm not a social scientist, but I do think the pandemic offered an unprecedented opportunity for people and men especially to spend excessive amounts of time online and to engage in potentially abusive, antisocial, and individualistic behavior that could lead to regressive approaches towards sex. I know there was an increase in the amount of porn being made and produced during the lockdown, which could certainly contribute to this behavior. And we're also seeing this kind of backlash to woke politics um, and Me Too and BLM um, and this conservative uprising really globally. Um, I, I do have another theory, which is almost impossible to prove, <laughs> but uh, in Berlin particularly, the makeup of the city has just changed and subcultural and underground scenes have kind of slowly been losing their identities to become extensions of the global tech hub. And the city is now flooded with international com companies and people who aren't fluent in the vernacular and code of conduct associated with the underground. And it's possible that these are also people who are perpetrating drink and or needle spiking in clubs. So there, there are really multiple facets of this that, again, are, are so difficult to prove. But I do think that there has been um, a huge, a huge impact on women and gender minorities uh, post-pandemic. And Anu, was there anything that you didn't either have room for at the time of writing or anything that's come up since you published this article originally that is of interest and relevant? Yes, a couple of things come to mind, actually. Um, firstly, I think the incident concerning Zanias is highly revealing of the impact drug prohibition laws have on health, well-being and harm reduction. And if I had more space, I would have really honed in on this a little bit more. So if venues where drug consumption is practically known are afraid to care for their punters out of fear that they'll be incriminated and penalised or shut down because of casualty cases, then I think it just shows the risks to public health 
that come with a prohibitionist approach to, to, um, to drugs. Um, the onus regarding drug laws here is, you know, it's, not ev- it's evidently not on the venues, but the lawmakers um, opening up, you know, a related but highly significant other can of worms, so to speak. I mean, it's like an age-old subject that's been discussed and debated to no end, but that doesn't make it any less relevant, uh, you know, to our lives every day, today or tomorrow. So the question, I think, is how can venues navigate the situation without putting lives at risk and without risking their venues from being shut down in the process? How does this affect how we implement harm reduction practices? So I I thought this was quite... um, you know, a, a significant area for discussion um, in the story, and maybe there will be room to do a separate story around this at some point. So the second thing that I think contributes to this discussion, um, of course, is the pandemic, and Chloe has touched on that extensively. Um, so I agree with 100% with, with everything that she has said, and it's it's also very significant. But um, after lockdown... Though could also mention that forty there was a forty percent rise in domestic violence reported um, during the first lockdown um, by um, uh, in London, sorry, by the University of London's Royal Holloway College. Since the party scene began to pick back up again, we've been hearing about incidents of sexual abuse within the scene. Um, and there are countless reasons for why this is happening, which is why I think it's all worth exploring. I won't go into everything, but firstly, I think it's worth exploring the correlation between spiking and sexual abuse cases. It uh, also opens up the conversation as to why spiking is happening, you know, to begin with. Um, so firstly, we need to look at the reason why there seems to be this culture of spiking in the scene. What do these perpetrators get from doing something like this? Do they plan to take the victim away somewhere, for example? Or is there some other reason behind what they're doing? You know, you mentioned earlier on about being alone, uh, going clubbing. Chloe mentioned that, you know, she used to love going to Burgine by her own and go clubbing. I used to love doing that as well. I'm less inclined, just like Chloe, and I'm sure many other women are less inclined to go out and do that these days. So luckily, the women uh, uh, in our spiking story were with friends. But what about those who are not with friends and who enjoy going to parties and and, uh, having a good time at venues by themselves? How do we protect them? I can understand where Chloe is coming from um, in how when we talk about spiking, it's generating a fear. You know, it's it's generating paranoia amongst the public and people don't want to go out you know having this fear around us it's not very nice and I get that but on the other hand if we don't have these conversations then how do we give hope to victims of abuse that it's actually okay to talk about it like for example we've been hearing about multiple cases of sexual abuse within the electronic music scene recently And I spoke with one person um, about a related story who said they were raped after being spiked with a drug that made them submissive. So yes, while this can be quite an obvious thing, it does show that there's a correlation between spiking and sexual abuse. Um, So I thought that was quite an interesting thing to also explore, which I never got a chance to actually go into too much detail with in my story. Um, Secondly, our investigations into sexual abuse cases show that the majority of women don't want to speak out for a number of reasons. And Chloe rightfully also touched on this. 
as well. And this raises something quite important that was shared with us by the person who said they were spiked and raped. They told us that, you know, if it's happened to you and you don't speak out or reach out for help to heal the trauma, you will bleed on the people who didn't cut you. In other words, you know, you it's possible that you'll be taking it out on others. Trauma is then inherited by subsequent generations. And I spoke about this with psychiatrist Daniel Clear. And he said most perpetrators of sexual violence, they come from a background of abuse themselves. The process of healing is very, very challenging for for anyone that might have been through such a traumatic experience. Um, but that is how the land lies. And the person I spoke with has been through years of therapy and it's taken a long time for that person to come out and speak. So it can take years. Um, I know that this is not, you know, directly related, but I do feel it's significant when we start exploring why spiking is taking place. And I think uh, a final point worth considering is um, door security staff training. Um, the Nighttime Industries Association in the UK did some research in May. They found that 57% of venues said the quality of their door staff was poor. 75% of venues reported that door staff shortages were impacting public safety. Um, so if door staff are not fully aware of how to deal with a safety issue, as seen in Zanias's case, not saying that we're putting the blame on anyone here, by the way, then we return to the same point about rethinking our approach to harm reduction. It just keeps on coming back to this point. I think these kinds of figures about door staff shortages and quality, they do give us an indicator of the kind of steps that we should be considering to make nightlife safer for everyone. I know that the Berlin Club Commission is taking some important steps, so it would be good to follow up on this, not just in terms of the steps that can be taken, but how these steps are actually working in practice. Um, but ultimately, we don't know how many cases of spiking are out there. We also don't know how many women have been spiked than raped. With regards to one case where we've been looking at, um, several women said they were raped like quite a few, um, but less than a handful were actually willing to speak out. So it's all an interconnected kind of worms, really. Mm. Yeah, there's so many angles that you could have kept on going with this article. Like It definitely needs a follow-up at some point. Um, but that's why we're here today, to keep this conversation going. So thank you for those other thoughts. Um, Chloe, there's a lot in what Anu has just said perhaps some of it overlaps with what you've been reading about and looking into and thinking. Have you spoken to the Berlin Club Commission recently and were they able to share any updates with what clubs are doing in terms of changing their policies around spiking and harm reduction? Have you heard anything? Sure. Um, I have talked to the Berlin Club Commission since Andrew's article came out and uh, they informed me that all the city's major clubs and their staff and operators are participating in trainings, workshops, and roundtables related to harm reduction. Um, I was unfortunately not able to get any direct responses from any clubs, but I do know that Berghain and RSO now have rooms and special staff that are trained to help in situations where guests are high or they feel that they've been spiked. Um you know, I know that Berghain specifically has faced criticism for not responding appropriately. Um, I'm not sure if that will change now, but I did see that they posted a list of health-related resources for clubbers that uh, they can consult on their website, uh, like the Berlin Crisis Service. 
Um, but yeah, I think like Anu said, um, you know, safety in clubs needs to be informed by transformative justice models. Um, I think they need to be shaped by the people who these spaces are made for. Gender and sexual minorities are facing more criticism from police without legal grounding when these situations arise. So I really think they need to be leading the conversation around how to best create spaces that are physically and psychologically safe. And when I last spoke to the Berlin Club Commission, they they definitely agreed with this. And it seems like they're working very closely with Berlin-based collectives and clubs to ensure that this is happening. We will continue to keep you up to date with this story on RA as developments unfold. In the meantime, Chloe, what is happening in Berlin right now? Um, how are people keeping safe? I think that at least for the near future, everyone who goes to clubs needs to use a buddy system and to consult local safety, violence and health related resources. Um, and Berghain posted about a few of these, including the Berlin Crisis Service. Um, it's possible that spiking or the panic around needle spiking specifically could die down as club culture reacclimates. But I think in the immediate future, there needs to be, there need to be more rigorous safety protocols in place as Anu suggested, um, continue bag searches, awareness teams on the ground. And I think signposting around clubs for recovery rooms are are really critical and it seems like that is hope hopefully becoming a more standard protocol um well chloe and anu thank you so much for your writing your research and for joining me on reflections today and yeah we'll be keeping up with your latest news pieces thank you for having me thank you so much If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in today's programme, check the description of this podcast for some links to resources that might help.